Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We are so happy you chose to join us. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit highlawnbaptistchurch.org for more information. But for now, grab your Bibles, go all the way to the back, and join us as we walk through Revelation. Well, good evening. We are in session 11 as we take a look at our... Um, review of the book of Revelation, like everything that we do before we approach God, we want to do that in the season of prayer. So let's bow our hearts together. Heavenly Father, as we come to you now, help us prepared to be prepared fully to take in the wisdom that you have for us in the coming sessions. Use this time and the materials presented to... Um, Help us develop a sense of awe and an awareness of the lengths that you went through to make this treasure that we have called the Bible possible. Help us to better understand both where it came from and the gravity that we should approach it with. Open us through the power of your spirit just now to what it means for us, what it means to us, and how we can not only uh, gain wisdom from it, but how we can live it out. So join with us now. Open our hearts, our hands, and our minds all to you through this study as, as well as through all the things that we do here. In the most holy name of Christ we pray. Amen. Now if you've gotten hold of your notes uh, online, you'll notice that they are a bit thinner than usual. That doesn't mean that this is going to be a short study or even an easy study. In fact, as my disclaimer comes up, Acts 17.11, I am going to count on you more now than at probably any other study, any other part of this study, to abide by that. And that tells us that uh, through the, the pen of Luke that the new believers in Berea were more noble in spirit than those in Thessalonica because not only did they receive the Word of God willingly, but they also searched the Scriptures daily to prove that the gospel that Paul was preaching to them was so. They didn't simply take what was being preached at face value. They did their homework to justify it to their hearts and minds so that their faith was complete. And that's what we're hoping for out of this study. And what we're doing tonight is we're taking a look at what prophecy is. Now the book of Revelation identifies itself as a book of prophecy. Not a book of allegory, not a book of symbolism, not a book of, of riddles, but a book of prophecy. This is what Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines prophecy as. And I'm going to show you this and, uh, and the Hebrew definition in just a second. But prophecy, according to Webster, is one of, uh, it, it can be defined in one of three ways. Either an inspired utterance of a prophet a function or vocation of a prophet, especially in the inspired declaration of divine will and purpose. That's, that's a decent one. But it's number three that, rise, that raises a lot of concern, a prediction of something to come. Now, if you're a normal, well-adjusted person, instead of that third definition uh, being third in, in, in your frame of reference, you usually think of that as what's first. 
When we, from a, a Greco-Roman mindset, which is what our culture is based on, here's the word prophecy, the first thing that we normally think about is future casting, foretelling. We think about somebody that predicts the future. But that's not so to the Hebrew mindset. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. The Hebrew word for prophecy is nebuah. And it can talk about any book written by a prophet, but it has to be, like the previous definition, under the divine influence of the Holy Spirit. Now, in some cases, like in the case of the Apostle David, in the case of Moses and his two siblings, sometimes this is an, an ecstatic um, utterance or, or bursting into song all at once, a psalm of praise that they're raising up because they have been in direct contact with God. According to Strong's definitions, it can be to speak or to sing by inspiration, or it could, in parenthesis, be in prediction or in simple discourse. So it's not always future casting. It's not always foretelling, but it's also forth-telling, meaning that more often than not, when a prophet says, Thus saith the Lord thy God, who brought thee out of the land of Egypt, for instance, it is something to do with his immediate audience that he is proclaiming. It's not about the future, it's about right now. So, again, for our culture's sake, when we think of a prophecy, this is normally what we think of because this is the culture that we're descended from. A divinely inspired forecast of the outcome of future events often offered in vague language or in riddles. We think of the, uh, the prophecy given by the weird sisters in Macbeth, all these things that they offer when, uh, when the forest climbs to attack Dunstane Castle, then your downfall will be. And uh, Macbeth thinks, well, that's never going to happen. Trees aren't going to pull themselves up by the roots and walk to the walls of the castle. When the sisters are actually saying, in, in effect, that uh, eventually people are going to cut those trees down, use them as shelter, and when you see that happening, you know that your days are numbered. So the same way with Greek, the, uh, with, uh, with Greek um, prophecy. More often than not, if you take a look into mythology, what you hear is somebody who's speaking in riddles, who offers the person that paid the oracle an opportunity to... Um, well, they give them a riddle that basically ends up with them fulfilling their own prophecy, with them uh, creating their own downfall. And that's not what biblical prophecy is. Biblical prophecy in the rabbinic mindset, in the Jewish mindset from which we are descended, is a divinely inspired offering of praise or instruction that presents the truth of a situation from God's perspective outside of time offering descriptions of future events as evidence of authentication. If you've ever served in the military, you know that authentication is a big to-do. If you get something that's in code, there's usually a check code that's part of that that you have to break open and examine to make sure that the, the, the message you've received is the correct message. In the case of the Word of God... The prophecy itself doesn't have to do normally with what's about to happen in the future. It normally happens, has to do with the here and now, but the prophet, it, through God's point of view, the prophet presents 
a future cast or a forecast that is God's way of saying, this is from me. So the future is not the point of a prophecy normally. The future is, is God's evidence of that his own fingerprints were on that message. The central point of the message, usually in a, prof, in a prophecy, is the truth from God's perspective. The truth meaning the will, the purpose, the relational, and the factual outlook of God. How is your relationship with God? How is Israel's relationship with God? In the case of the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, how is the church's relationship with Christ? These are the truths that, uh, that prophecies concerns. They're usually uh, targeted at the immediate and the practical, as we saw with the book of Revelation chapters 1 through 3. But they're also filled with a lot of imagery that uh, can predict future events. We're going to see that in just a second as we take a look at a prophecy from the book of Hosea. Uh, we think about the terms of salvation. I am saved, I am being saved, I will be saved. It's a fact that I can claim right here, right now, that will see its ultimate completion way down the line. But there are also those, uh, if something is proclaimed in the Bible to the immediate audience, it can have a future echo of something yet to come. When prophets are usually writing this type of stuff, there's a lot of imagery that can go into it. And this need not necessarily mean the prophets uh, that you think of when we, we look at all of, all of the writers of Scripture, not just those listed in the list of books called the prophets, but all, pro all of the Scripture writers, because of the culture that they come from, have these parts of who they are that contribute to a prophetic image. We look at the numbers. We've gone over this several times in our Torah study. The number seven, for instance, represents holiness or completeness. The number six, incompleteness or fallenness. The number 40, a period of testing normally or, or something having to do with the faithful of God or with the people of God being tested. So there are certain meanings behind the numbers. Colors are the same way. White, for instance, meaning purity. Red, for instance, alluding to sacrifice. Gold alluding to royalty. Materials. We've already talked about gold as a color. Same thing holds true for it as a material possession. Silver also represented, uh, represents blood because that's what they used to use to purchase a sacrifice with. In fact, the footers uh, the, the, uh, the pinnings of the tabernacle were made out of silver as a way of kind of instilling the truth in people's minds that this house of sacrifice was built off of the fact that grace is obtained through blood. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. So materials have a prophetic insight. Animals, uh, lions for instance, symbols of royalty. Birds, as we found out in some of the exposition of Jesus himself, I talk about the, those of the enemy, the Holy Spirit in exception uh, representing, uh, or the dove rather being represented by the Holy Spirit. Um, rituals and festivals, one of my favorites to talk to you about is the ancient Jewish wedding festival, which is a peculiar institution whereby the husband passes a cup to the bride-to-be as 
the forming of a covenant between them, a covenant of intent, but at that second, they're also legally bound together. There's also a ritual kidnapping that happens. The husband-to-be goes to his father's house, and he adds an addition to that father's house, which is where they'll begin their lives together. Then the, the bride-to-be, with her closest friends, keeps their lamps trimmed and burning every night until that addition is finished. And when the father of the house comes in, looks around that room and certifies that it is uh, to his standards, he tells the son, go and get your bride. So he grabs his closest friends, and as a community together, as Christ and the angels, he goes and he get, gets his bride. They go before the town gates. They have the official marriage ceremony, the chuppah, and then he takes his bride to the wedding feast at his father's house. So you see how all this is kind of a foreshadowing of what is to come. Same thing can be said of each and every one of the Jewish festivals. All of them have a meaning not only for the Old Testament, but also that ekes into the New Testament, the fulfillment that we see through Christ. What I want to talk to you about now is this, this idea of authentication, using the future as a way to describe the fact that God has His fingerprints on something that's considered prophecy. This is normally the way that we look at time. Even from elementary school age, we usually construct these things, we call them a timeline, where the past is in the far left of the piece of paper, the, the present is in the middle, the future is on down the road to the right. Now, as we are human beings right now, until we see eternity, until we shed this, this, this perishable body, we can only see accurately in the present, in the here and now. We can remember the past based on this chemical storage mechanism that functions between our ears, hopefully. It's not always accurate, though. So we can't go back in time and re-see what we've already seen, or re-hear what we've already heard. We can't re-experience the past. Nor can we call upon ourselves to see deep into the future, to know what's going to happen. The only place in time that we can exist is in the here and now. When we talk about eternity, though, we're not talking about having extra time. We're talking about a space that exists outside of that confine. So whereas we can only see the here and now right now, God can see our present. God can, has seen our past. God already has seen our future. So instead of us being confined the way that we are, God, meaning that He is already in eternity, can see all three different phases, past, present, and future, at the same time. We know that the victory is won because He's there already. We know that we've been helped because He's been back there. And this God has let us know through His Word that He is the same today as He was yesterday and will be what? Forevermore, tomorrow and forevermore. So one of the ways that God uses to proclaim that His truth is the truth and that the Bible is valid is that He writes history for us in advance through the pens of the prophets. Now again, more often than not, that is just to verify the fact that the message that He's giving through God's Word, through His Word, through what we call the Bible, does not come to us, even though it was penned by more than 40 different guys, over the course of 4,000 plus years, 
It's a message. It's a single message. All 66 books combined to form one single integrated message that came to us authored by Him under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit of God. God breathed to His prophets from outside the confines of time. Now we talked about this a little bit in the study of the book of Genesis where we, ha- we exist in basically four dimensions that we know about. Length, width, height, and time. But just as the person that built this tablet doesn't live in this tablet, God is not confined by this universe. In fact, the supernatural, as that graphic should be suggesting, what we would call the supernatural is far and away more expansive and more real than what we call the material here and now. The fascinating thing to me is that when Paul talks about, in, in I think it's 1 Thessalonians, when Paul talks about we will not all sleep, but we will all be what? We will all be changed in that moment in the twinkling of an eye. We will, in effect, have the same dimensionality. We will have the same, in effect, ability to see all of time that Christ Himself enjoys. Something to look forward to, I think. But when I tell you that I want you to develop an awe and appreciation for what the lengths that God has gone to, to give you the Word, remember, He is looking at us from outside the restrictions of time, crafting this book that we call the Bible, glibly call the Bible, so that we can have a deeper relationship with Him based on where we are. He stooped down to make that relationship possible. Aren't you glad He did? So again, eternity for our sake in your notes exists outside the confines of linear time where we are right now. It does, and when we talk about eternity, again, we don't talk, it's not, when we say eternal, we're not just talking about a long span of time. We're talking about something that exists outside of the confines of time. It doesn't refer to an extended future either because as, as Charles Stanley says, back from eternity past on through eternity future, meaning that there's no limit to God. What, it, what eternity does state or does refer to, and, and I put this definition together and it doesn't even come close to defining it. Because nothing can. What it refers to, just for our sake of talking, is a state of being where time is not restricted. Where God can be in the past. God is in the present. God will be in the future all simultaneously. Almost hurts your brain to think about. But nevertheless, that's where He is. Right now I want to review really quickly with you what the Bible says about its own construction. Through the prophetic Ministry of the servants of God, starting with Deuteronomy chapter 18. And this is Moses, the first prophet of what is now the nation of Israel. There have been prophets before, granted, but this, in this point in time, Israel is now a nation coming out of Egypt. And Moses is its first as a kingdom. But not only that, Moses is also, as we talked about, a foretaste of the ministry that will be Christ's. 
But anyway, uh, Deuteronomy 18, starting with verse 9. When you enter into the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not imitate the detestable customs of the other nations. No one among you is to sacrifice his son or daughter in the fire, practice divination, tell fortunes, interpret omens, practice sorcery, cast spells or consult a medium or a spiritualist or inquire of the dead. Because eternity is the province of God. This is God's ministry. This is the Holy Spirit's ministry. This is why checking your horoscope is a bad thing in the sight of God. Because in effect, you're trying to replace what He's wanting to do for you. Through His Word. Anyway, going on. Everyone who does these acts is detestable to the Lord. And the Lord your God is driving out the nations before you because of these detestable acts, because they have tried to replace Him. You must be blameless, holy in other words, before the Lord your God. Though these nations you are about to drive out listen to fortune tellers and diviners, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, and this is Moses talking about, and in the Gospels when uh, when, when the followers of John the Baptist come to, you, come to him and ask him, are you that prophet? This is what he's talking about. This is what they're talking about. A prophet in the image or in the likeness of Moses. A prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. This is what you've requested from the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let us not continue to hear from the voice of the Lord our God or see this great fire any longer so that we will not die. Because remember, they were afraid when they were on the holy mountain. They saw the pillar of flame. They heard the voice of God for themselves. And it was so loud, so convicting, and so powerful that they didn't want to have that exposure, but they wanted to appoint somebody or have God appoint somebody that would act as an intermediary. And two... All throughout the scripture, that is the ministry of a prophet. A prophet's job is to go to the people of God on behalf of God. The priest is the other way around. The priest goes from the people to God to beg for mercy. The prophet goes from God to the people to declare instruction, to declare truth. Verse 17, that the Lord said to me, they have spoken well. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. I will hold accountable whoever does not listen to my words that he speaks in my name. But the prophet who presumes to speak a message in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods that prophet must die. If you haven't already underlined that in your copy of God's Word, I'll swing around to that in just a second. Verse 21. You may say to yourself, how can we recognize a message that the Lord has not spoken? Underline this as well. Verse 22. When a prophet speaks in the Lord's name, and the message does not come true or is not fulfilled, that is a message that the Lord has not spoken. 
Why? Because again, God can see the future. God already sees the past. God uh, is engaged in the, the present. So what he's effectively saying, this truth is still in effect, by the way. We might not stone to death people that portray themselves in prophets that we can say are not prophets. But there is a one strike and you're out rule. How do I know this? Because Moses himself suffered because of it. The prophet that God spoke directly to when he was next to the water, uh, next to, excuse me, the rock to give water, this, he was, God was setting up a prophetic image. The rock, which represents, Paul identifies as representing Christ. He struck it the first time so that the water of life would issue forth. The second time Moses was supposed to ask for the water of life. That's what we do. When Christ was struck, when he was crucified, grace was freely offered to all. And all we have to do now in the present is go to him and ask for it. That was the prophetic image that Moses was supposed to set up. And that was what Moses was commanded to do. But what did Moses do instead? He got mad and he struck the rock a second time. And because he rejected the message God had given him, he wasn't allowed to enter into the promised land, but instead he died as a direct result of being disobedient. If someone who identifies themselves as a prophet gives a false prophecy, we might not stone them to death, but they get one strike and they're out. If they take upon themselves to present a message that's from themselves and not from God, then they're done. In the, case, in the, fact, in the sight of any believer, that should be it. If they give a direct wording that says this will happen on this date at that time, this time, and it doesn't happen, and they've used that precise wording. If something doesn't happen, if the thing doesn't come true, and you see it right now in the black and white of God's Scripture, the God that would not prevent Moses himself, his own appointed, from having to live to that, that requirement, one strike, you're out. When the prophet speaks in the Lord's name and the message does not come true or is not fulfilled, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. The, pro the prophet has spoken it presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him, no matter how much magic you've seen him do. No matter how big the crowd he gathers, one strike you're out. And this is something that we need to consider and consider very, very, uh, very um, seriously because the work of prophecy is the work of the Holy Spirit of God. Okay, and that's a relationship that God takes very seriously. What is the only unpardonable sin? The, the denial, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So God takes the believer's relationship with the Holy Spirit as sacred, and so should we. And if someone speaks on behalf of the Holy Spirit without consulting the Holy Spirit, 
They have literally taken the name of the Lord thy God in vain. They have gone in front of someone bearing the name of God, bearing the phrase, thus says the Lord, and they've lied. Yeah. It's a ministry. It's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It concerns the will of God for His people. Uh, again, it's foretelling. Foretelling is for divine verification. Um, most of the time, a prophetic word is a word of instruction. All throughout the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Amos, the prophet is calling Israel to task. He, he's not shouting about the future. He's telling them about the present, the fact that they're being dishonest with their neighbors, the fact that they're being oppressors of their own people, the fact that they're being horrible human beings and denying the law, denying God, and worshiping themselves. In fact, Amos chapter 1, if you want to read that sometime this week, I, I encourage you to. He starts out, and you can imagine the prophet standing in an amphitheater filled with Israelites. And all the way through, he's talking, he's really down-talking all these surrounding nations all around Israel. And, and he gets closer and closer, and he spirals in. And you can hear them cheering as he's talking bad about all these other surrounding and competing nations. But when he gets to his own nation of Israel, he says, you're worse than all of them. God revealed himself to you. God loved you. God gave you his law. He gave you the sacrifices. He gave you loads of mercies. And you have denied him, spat in his face, and condemned his own people. Anyway, moving on. So, so the, the truth of God is what's of primary importance in the prophecies. Not the future casting, but the here and now. Prophets also, and this is something else I want us to remember, prophets represent God in a very intimate way. Because a prophet is a li living letter, a living messenger of God, bearing something on their heart that is pinned or breathed from the Creator Himself. Also, and finally on this note, a direct representation of this type requires direct accountability, and I'll, see, I'll show you why in a second. This is from the New Testament, 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, and my apologies, but I think on your notes this is a misprint. Uh, I think that it's accidentally 1 Peter in your, in your printed notes. It should actually be 2. This is, what, this is what the Apostle says. We did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to Him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with Him on the holy mountain. We also have the prophetic word strongly confirmed. In other words, all of the Old Testament, all of the prophets to this point, everything that we've built our faith on as Jews has now been fulfilled with the coming of Christ. And we saw it. You will do well to pay attention to it as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day that dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But above all, you know this. And this is the crux of the matter. No prophecy of Scripture 
that is nothing identified by prophecy that, that the Holy Spirit under His divine protection allowed to make part of the canon that we have today. No prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet's own in, interpretation. Because no prophecy, and this you can apply to all forms of prophecy, no prophecy ever came by the will of man. No real prophecy anyway. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So here is the more challenging thing. Prophecy is a word from God. And this is the real hard meaning, which is why a lot of pastors, particularly in the Reformed circles, believe in, in cessationism, meaning that uh, the work of the Holy Spirit through, uh, through the gifts of the Spirit, at least the, the, um, the shiny, um, more supernaturally profound, I guess you'd call it, gifts, have been suspended, and I believe that they would consider prophecy in there. I'll talk about my view in just a second. But prophecy is a word from God, meaning that will, real prophecy has to be considered as authoritative as Holy Scripture. Now before you start throwing tomatoes at me, let me explain that. The Bible that we have today was granted to us as a gift from God, breathed through His, uh, through His servants. And because it is a message from God, it is prophecy. Which means, logically speaking, and there, there were, I hate to say this, but there were actually uh, big clashes in theological circles trying to divide the Word of God. The, the words of Christ have to always be in red or have to always be in some such condition so that we can tell them apart from the rest of the Bible because they are more authoritative than anything else anyone else has written. Or the New Testament is the only part of the Bible that we have to care about. The Old Testament doesn't matter. Uh, in all this business, trying to divide the Word of God instead of divining the Word of God. It, uh, the, old, the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. So the grace, the love, and, and, and the ministry of Christ is in the Old Testament. In fact, that's the gospel that Jesus himself on the road to Emmaus preached out of. And the New Testament is the revealing of the Old Testament. This is what it all meant. This is where it was all leading to. This is the grace that God intended from the beginning of mankind. So the new is in the old. The old is in the new. Translation. It takes the whole Bible to produce a whole mature Christian. But if someone in today's day and age, just as someone back then, claims, thus saith the Lord, Four things that I can think of off the top of the bat have to be in place. Number one, it can have uh, any prophecy whatsoever cannot call someone to disobedience, period. Number two, they can, it, it cannot call someone to deny God in favor of other gods or in favor of the self. Number three, it cannot be contradictory in any way, shape, or form to the Holy Bible. And number four, it, it has to come as a direct result of the Holy Spirit. And if God puts that, thing, that thumbprint on that message that is the future casting and it doesn't come true, then you know for a fact that what was spouted out is a lie. I'll go ahead and say it. 
This is the general prophetic pattern when you look at the Old Testament. Now, this isn't always the case, as we'll talk about in just a second, but it's more, than, more often than not, there was this uh, assemblage of people who were believers that called themselves the School of the Prophet. Uh, School of the Prophets were kind of like discipleship pods where they used to, tr to study the Word of God to make sure that what they were preaching was congruent with it. And they also studied things like poetry, writing, descriptiveness. If you, if you take a look at all the books of the Old Testament prophets, the majority of them are written in Hebrew poetry. But again, this is not something that they themselves wrote with a pen and their own imagination. This is something that God breathed through that person that became a, real, a reality in the form of Scripture. So this is the general prophetic pattern. First, God identifies Himself and usually he provides a title. Gee, where have I heard that before? Thus saith the Lord thy God who called thee forth from the land of Egypt. Uh, meaning that just like Jesus in Revelation 2 and 3 uh, talked about, this is what, this is, thus says the, the great I am, the son of the living God, or he who holds the seven stars in his hand. You know, there's not only that identifier of this is the same God, this is the same Christ, but also there's a reason why he's choosing this title and you need to pay attention to it. Secondly, so each and every one of those letters in Revelation 2 and 3 follow that pattern, follow that same style that was all the way from uh, the Old Testament. Anyway, prophecies usually share a related part of Israel's past or Israel's culture. Like just as you participate in the Passover festival, or just as God called you with a mighty hand out of the land of Egypt, something along those lines, because the prophet is about ready to call your attention to a similar set of circumstances that you're living in right now. It offers instruction regarding the present, and again, it provides a warning or a forecast of the future. If you don't get your act right with God right now, this is going to happen. Um, <laughs> in four days, Nineveh will be overturned. That comes to mind. And it was, just not in the way that they anticipated. But let's move on. Prophetic communication is often poetic, as I, I talked about, full of symbolic imagery. Lots of figures of speech, similes, metaphors, puns, is a, that's a big one. Uh, personifications, um, lots of different forms of speech that are all throughout with the intention of bringing the listener's, uh, the listener's mind to the truths of God. And a lot of them are in that cultural dialogue of, of ancient Israel. And here's the most, prof the, the, the most frustrating thing when talking about the Old Testament prophets or even the prophecy supplied by John in the book of Revelation. They're not always written with linear time in mind. Sometimes many things are going on at the same time. Sometimes things are out of order so that the, the author can prove a point. If you'll recall, uh, John in the book of Revelation, for instance, was called up to the very throne room of the universe where he was trying to rationalize and communicate a God that can not only rule over everything that exists, but see the past, present, and the future at the exact same time. And that's daunting. Think about all the mental gymnastics the man had to go through to put pen to paper. 
out of having seen all these wonderful things from the past, from the present, from the future, from heaven, from eternity, from on the earth during the, the period of the revelation, it's, it boggles the mind, especially for those of us that have to study the thing. <clears throat> but this is true. Its wording is chosen precisely. All prophecy is this way. If someone tells you that in an upcoming election, on this date, such and such will become the President of the United States, such and such will become the Mayor of St. Albans, this whole idea of the prophetic pattern, the prophetic trajectory, uh, something being taken out of context that might happen later on down the road, no. If, if the prophet mentions a date, mentions a certain set of time, the wording in every prophecy in Scripture is exact and precise. Why? Because the Holy Spirit, in wanting to preserve for you the message that He intends to be seen and studied, not one yacht nor tittle, translation, not the dotting of an I or the crossing of a T, is out of place and will not be fulfilled. No ink has been wasted in constructing the Bible. Let's take a look at one of these prophecies really quickly. This is Hosea chapter 11. If you want to turn there in your copy of God's Word really quickly. And I want you to think about a few things as we approach this scripture. I want you to be on the lookout for phrases or for, for the different um, types of speech, different types of idioms that the prophet is using. I want you to look at the poetry. Because in many of your copies of God's Word, you're going to see things spelled out in, in poetic lines, in couplets. I want you to look underneath the text to see what Hosea is saying to his present audience. And I want you to think about the echoes in the future. More often than not, when a prophet like this writes something, the here and now is made perfectly plain. But it's the similes, the metaphors, the descriptive language, that part is what's used to echo into the future. So let's take a look at Hosea chapter 11 together. And we'll, we'll point this stuff out as we go along. When Israel was a young child, that's personification. Israel in this case is referring to not Israel the person, but Israel the nation. When Israel was a young child, even though he did love Israel, a.k.a. Jacob himself too. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. Again, this is personification. This is an idiom of speech. But as Christians living in the 21st century, who can we say that this is also identifying? When God says, out of Egypt I called my son, who is he talking about? Jesus. Okay, so this is, this is a prophetic echo. He meant one thing in the immediate presence, but in the, in the fullness of time, Jesus himself was called out of Egypt because he went in there to escape the wrath of King Herod. Israel called to the Egyptians, even as Israel was leaving them. And this is hearkening back to Exodus, where they said, were there, no, were there no graves in Egypt that you should lead us out here to die in the wilderness? 
oh, I miss all the cucumbers and the, the different vegetables and the, the chicken and the fish and all that. Were there no graves in Egypt? So this is hearkening back to the past. Israel called to the Egyptians even as Israel was leaving them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and the burning of offerings to idols. And this happened several places. This is not just in the Exodus event. When the land of Israel was split between the north and south, the northern kingdom especially went into practicing the religion of their neighbors. They did sacrifice to idols. In fact, if you think about Samson and Delilah, Samson uh, was in a temple built in the land of Israel to Dagon, part of this pantheon. So this, this, this is the this same truth in the prophet echoing again and again on through time. <clears throat> it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Now Ephraim is often used as a... It's the largest tribe of the northern kingdom. So when you see this in the, the Old Testament, chances are he's not only talking about the tribe, but the northern kingdom of Israel as well. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Again, this is personification, talking about God's care and God's love and God's instruction. Taking him by the hand, but they never knew that I healed him. Translation, they ignored God, even though God was being generous. I, lie, I, excuse me, I led them with human cords, with ropes of love. We've got metaphors here in two different places. To them, I was like, simile, the one who eases the yoke from their jaws. I bent down to give them food. So all this is talking about the northern kingdom and God loving them with a lavish love, providing for them, taking care of them as he does still, and still having this heart for them. Israel will not return to the land of Egypt, and Assyria will be his king. Okay, so this is a thumbprint of God. But because he's, he's taking Israel's past, slavery in Egypt, and he's predicting slavery to another nation. In this case, who? Assyria. Assyria will be his king. So you're not going to go back into that land of, of slavery. I am going to judge you and send you into this new land of slavery. Syria will be your king because they refuse to repent. A sword will whirl through the cities. Symbolism, metaphor. It will destroy and devour the bars of his gates because of their schemes. My people are bent on turning from me, though they call to him on high, he will not exalt them. So what God, what you can interpret that God is saying here through all this imagery is that God loves these people with a passionate love. God, God really, really has a heart for the people of Israel. But they've turned their backs on him. They've denied his existence to a point. He said earlier, remember, that they didn't, he didn't even know anymore that I was the one that helped my people are bent on turning from me. And even though in the process that they will call upon my name, the Holy One, the one on high, will not exalt them in all. Then comes this hopeful message. 
How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I surrender you, Israel? How can I make you like Admah? How can I treat you like like Zeboim? Those two, uh, those two are cities located in the area of Sodom and Gomorrah that were destroyed along with Sodom and Gomorrah. So how, how can I destroy you? I love you with a lavish love, so how can I utterly destroy you the same way that I love them? I have a change of heart and my compassion is stirred. I will not vent the full fury of my anger. I will not turn my back to destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man. The Holy One among you, I will not come in rage. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. Many have called this as a, a predictor of the end of the Babylonian exile. I don't believe that's the case because Babylon is located in the east of Israel. But this could link up very easily with the great uh, diaspora. For several generations, Israel was removed from the land and then from the West, from Europe, from the Americas. All of a sudden, a new nation came back into being, and it was Israel. I will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come. Children, again, being a personification. Symbolic language, showing God's love for them. And they will come trembling from the West. They will be roused like birds from Egypt, like doves from the land of Assyria. Then I will settle in their homes. I will settle them in their homes. This is the Lord's declaration. So again, doves are, uh, are symbolic of the Holy Spirit of God, of those that, that are claimed as believers of God. So he's saying that he's going to bring them back home. He's even going to settle them in their homes. That after the judgment of the Lord has passed, and it will pass, that he's going to bring them back in. Ephraim sounds, surrounds me with lies, the house of Israel with deceit. This is a stinger on the end of the prophecy. Judah still wanders with God and is faithful to the holy ones. Now this is Hosea describing the difference between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Remember the northern kingdom fell into idolatry straight out of the bat. But the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, um, David's family continued to reign up until the time of the exile. And for the most part, were faithful, even though they did have the bad kings. So what does all this have to do with the price of eggnog in, uh, in the Sudeten land? Simply this. Whenever we look at any kind of prophecy, we have a really bad habit of looking at it with Western eyes, with Greek-Roman eyes, with the country that we're from with American eyes. The prophecies of the Old Testament and the prophecies within the New Testament share the same cultural language. They have the same symbols. 
They have the same poetry to them. They have the same basic pattern. They call to remembrance the things of the past so that the person speaking and instructing from God can relate to the present. And just to make sure that we understand that this is a sign from God, the fingerprints of God are all over His Word that predict the future. If the future comes to pass, then we know that it is a reliable source of instruction, of divine instruction. If it doesn't, we know it's from a false prophet and needs to be left out. So, when we look at the book of Revelation, what we need to bear in mind is a lot of what was in the Old Testament and a lot of things that we need to look for in the Old Testament. The numbers, the symbols, the colors, the materials, um, even the, the kind of the poetic language is going to carry in. And we're going to break that down a couple of verses at a time. So as we dig into it, my goal with this session was first off to kind of immunize you against the false prophets that we have to deal with on the television, the radio, the podcast, and so forth today. Because again, God does not change. God's MO has never changed. God tells us that He is the same today as He was yesterday and will be forevermore. Okay, God has a habit of remaining consistent. Thanks be to God for that. But because he's consistent, a lot of people, false teachers out there nowadays, try to take advantage of his people by luring uh, crowds to them, proclaiming, thus saith the Lord, but falling on their faces so many times, and yet they, they have such a magnetic personality, and they tickle the ears of their people so well that people keep forgetting about what the Word of God actually says. Bear this in mind. Many of us uh, do not hold to false teachers. There are lots that, that, that do. So for those of you that, um, that look at this stuff and think, oh, I know all that, my hope is for you that this gives you some vocabulary where you can teach others. Some stuff, Bible verses that you can call to your command um, words that you can use to say, look, this is what the Bible says about what's going on. Don't listen to this guy because even though we can forgive him or her, if they ask for it and if they repent, unfortunately because of the pattern that we have from Moses on, because they have neglected their gift and because they have lied by taking the badge of the Holy Spirit and and lying in his name, he cannot, that person cannot be trusted anymore. The end. They had their one strike and they struck out. The cult of personality, and that's not of God. So, for next session, go ahead and read through Revelation chapter 4. And in your study time, or in your, your nighttime uh, devotional, devotional time, I want you to journal all the impressions 
that you have from what you read and what you believe the symbols mean, just off the bat, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? What does this seem to link up with based on what you know from your other readings in the Bible? What truths do you think about God's throne room do they reveal? Take those, journal them, and then share them with your group. And make sure that you're meeting with your group regularly. I know that we've come uh, through Easter, through Monday, sur- Sunday, and all that. Monday, Thursday, excuse me, and resurrection morning. But keep together with your fellowship groups. Talk often and share this stuff. But read it, read it twice. Journal down your impressions and your, your knee-jerk reactions and then share it and see what truths the Holy Spirit reveals to you. And all God's people said, Amen. So Heavenly Father, as we draw this time to a close, we ask that you would continue uh, to grant us your wisdom, to grant us uh, your vision for what this precious book means, what it means to us as we prepare our hearts to receive the return of our King. So be with and inspire those who, um, who are continuing with this study, with our church. Continue to grant them um, your favor and your special blessing as they read this book, as they study it, and as they seek to find their place in it. So go with them now. Grant them strength for the remainder of this journey. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from High Lawn Baptist Church. If you'd like to learn more about High Lawn Baptist Church or donate to our ongoing ministry, you can do so online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We believe that when you love God, you share His Word, and when you love others, you spread the gospel. We hope you enjoyed today's message and pray that you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.